0: Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design.
1: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 399.
0: Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Goudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 399 you're listening to. My guest today, of course, is Dave Schiffman. This is part two of our discussion with Dave, who, of course, is a Grammy-winning producer, mixer, and engineer based in Los Angeles. He's worked with System of a Down, Adele, Mars Volta, Johnny Cash, a lot of great people. And this is part two of that discussion. So, Really happy to uh, bring you the second half of this. I think you're going to enjoy that just as much as you did the first. If you haven't heard the first, I kind of encourage you to do the first one before you do the second one. So stop this if you haven't heard it and go back to number one and check it out first. And uh, yeah, I like to go in order. I don't know. Is that just me? Anyhow, Dave Schiffman coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about influence from outside of our industry. We're living in a great time. We have a lot of inspiration all around us. And you know, it's whether it's books, magazines, YouTube videos, websites, seminars, the list goes on. There's a lot of great opportunity in the world of audio to learn from others and be inspired by others. But allow me to draw your attention away from ourselves for a bit. Yeah, imagine that. Stop looking at ourselves. Stop looking at all of us in the audio world. I find incredible inspiration for my audio world, my audio practice I like to say, in other things. And I've mentioned it before, I'm a big fan of Masterclass. I watch that quite a bit. I find myself drifting towards directors uh, Warner Herzog, Spike Lee, any number of them on that masterclass is really insp- inspiring to me personally to check out. Also there is a great documentary on Disney Plus all about industrial light and magic. And it really kind of goes into you know how George Lucas got this group of fantastic people together, very smart people to form an effects company that could do things that didn't exist before in the world of filmmaking. And of course, you know all of you are familiar with ILM at this point and all the movies they've been involved with. Very inspiring story. And you might ask, well, Matt, I mean, with all the choices we have, why do you need inspiration from outside? Well, you know what? I like to see how other people do things in other industries, how they tackle problems how they deal with obstacles. And I find that really inspiring. I also find just the creative process in other areas very inspiring. But that's not all. It's not just about documentaries about film that I find inspiring, even though I'm not even involved in film, you know. But also I get inspiration from hearing about other people's stories. Uh, There's a great podcast that Guy Raz from NPR puts on called How I Built This, I believe it's called. And that's got stories about people and their journeys and how they, you know, created, say, for example, you know, whether it's Mark Cuban talking about his successes or the folks over at Merge Records creating Merge Records. And I'll put a link in the show notes, of course, to all this stuff I'm talking about. But really just hearing other stories of how people achieve how they conquer, how they overcome adversity in what they're dealing with, and the successes, of course. But then there's also the creative spark. Where do they get it from? And in general, talking to everyday people I come across that I find myself in conversation with, I seek inspiration from a lot of different sources. When I come back to the world of audio, I draw on those sources. You know, when I'm encountering an obstacle, it really gets me thinking like, oh, okay, well, what did I learn from whatever thing or person, you know, whatever documentary I've recently watched or Masterclass or person I've talked to, get me to rethink some of the things I've been doing and, and how I do things. My advice is, you know, once in a while, put down this podcast, put down your tape ops, put down your your pure mixes and your mix with the masters. Obviously, no disrespect to any of my friends in those areas, but just, you know, take a break from it and go out and find inspiration from other sources and see how that affects you. See if you get any new ideas, see if you get any new inspiration, a creative spark, something that you can bring back to the world of audio for all of us to enjoy. And it doesn't matter if you're a producer, an engineer, a a plug-in maker, uh, a gear manufacturer, Seek inspiration outside of our own field and see where that brings you. Because having that different perspective, I think makes us better at what we do. I don't know if you all agree with that. I I tend to agree with myself on that, but anyhow. Yeah, inspiration from outside the world of audio. Check it out, try it out, see what you think. If you think I'm full of shit, send me an email and say, Matt, I don't really get this. Where are you coming from, my friend? Let me know what you think. You can always email me, Matt, at workingclassaudio.com. And if you do agree with me and or you're curious, head on over to workingclassaudio.com or in the podcast aggregator you're listening to uh, this show in right now. And in the show notes, I'll put links to all these things that, you know, I get a lot of inspiration from that you could readily get access to right today. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Dave Schiffman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You were, for the most part, I assume, I mean, you hung in there for 10 years with Rick and that was a good relationship. At what point did you decide it was time to go or did he just change direction and try somebody else? Or does he have a stable of people that he kind of works with?
0: Yeah, there were probably at that point two or three of us that were working pretty steadily with him as engineers there was me greg fiddleman jim scott
1: what about andrew
0: or ryan yeah andrew Sheps was kind of coming up this was a little before ryan okay like ryan was still working over at oceanway
1: okay an audience sorry we're talking about ryan hewitt i don't
0: ryan like, hewitt yeah i
1: like to say the full name so people know who i'm talking about
0: right When I started with him, like Dave Sardi was still working with him. He was kind of on his way out. Mm. And every once in a while, like Dave Bianco would come in and do something. Or once in a while, Richard Dodd. But after one hot minute, I think he was kind of done. And I think the only thing he did was he came out and he mixed the Tom Petty record after Wildflowers. He mixed Echo. Mm. That was, I think, the next thing he did. So it it was a fairly tight stable And I think after 10 years, I think what had happened was I was starting to see other opportunities, producing, engineering for some other producers, mixing records for some other artists that Rick wasn't working on. And it just kind of felt like time.
1: Well, in that 10-year period, did you kind of isolate yourself just to working with Rick so that you could say yes to any project that he had
0: going on? I didn't like there wasn't a, uh, you know, you can't work with anybody else. And there would be stretches where nothing would be going on because he'd either be in rehearsing or he'd be in mix mode on something and I wasn't mixing it. So there was other stuff that was kind of in and around it. Mm. I think what was starting to happen was there were one or two projects where they literally got canceled the day before we started. Mm. And it was maybe like a month's worth of work just like evaporated. And that happens twice, two, three times. That can be a little disconcerting. And for whatever reason, I I, I don't necessarily say it was Rick's fault. I don't really know the the particulars on why those things happened. But I just really didn't feel in control of my own destiny at that point. And I just didn't want that in my life anymore. And it wasn't like a, I'm not working for you anymore kind of thing. It was like, I think I was finishing the last System of a Down record and I had gotten an offer to make a record with a band called Stellar. They were on RCA, cool little band from Brooklyn. And it was going to take me to New York for, I don't know, I think like five or six weeks. And I knew that Rick was about to start a record with Weezer. He was definitely like talking about it like I was doing it. And I was like, all right, well, I can stay here and I can work on a Weezer record that may or may not go off. Or I can take my shot here and go produce this record in New York. And that's what I opted to do. And I was like, well, you know, I'll be back in town in a little bit and always down to work. I think I may have actually done the Mars Volta record after that. I can't remember the order because I I feel like the Mars Volta record was after System of a Down, but it was a couple of years after. Hmm. But at that point, I was a little more like in and out of the world, of Rick's world, until I just wasn't doing anything with him anymore.
1: When you're in that position of working for somebody like Rick, or Rick specifically, I, I guess this question is more targeted towards. I mean, obviously, you're the engineer, so would you operate differently in that role for Rick than you would say for a producer engineer? Because Rick, Rick doesn't engineer, but no, no. But say if you were working for somebody else who has engineering chops, would would the role be a little different?
0: definitely because it's really up to me to figure out what it is Rick wants and how to make it happen mm. whereas if I'm working with somebody who's more of an engineer it becomes more of a co decision right where there's more suggestions back and forth
1: yeah like
0: placement mics yeah yeah yeah
1: rooms Whereas Rick would
0: just be like, we need a vocal. Right, or he'd come in and hear the drums and (laughs) he would be like, drums sound like they're down the street. They need to be closer, need to sound drier. And that would be what I'd have to work on. Go from there, make the drums drier. Like snare sounds like it's down the street. Gotta be, I want it super close. That was just like, (laughs) in the 10 years I worked with him, I don't think I ever put up reverb. That was during the... It was during the dry years where everything was bone dry. (laughs) So it's interesting. And now it's like, it's funny because when I hear stuff now that's dry, it's like, it's so striking because I think modern music has definitely moved away from that. But there was a point where everything was just bone dry. Yeah, I'm thinking of the cult in particular. Right. And, you know, all the Chili Peppers records, bone dry, audio slave, bone dry. He couldn't get away with it on Mars Volta, but if he had his way, it would have been. <laughs> Omar was not having that.
1: Yeah. That's every client's kind of uh, when you're working with a client, you figure out, oh, this is a dry person or this is a wet person. How wet
0: is this person going to want it? Right. How, how wet is wet? Yeah. yeah. Or how
1: how forward the vocal, how far back the vocal.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's still a question that I'm always asking. Like when I'm starting to mix a record, I'm always like, so are you a dry guy or do you want to be like in the well? Yeah. Where's your tolerance on that? Sometimes people like really have no idea and they're, they're like, you know, whatever. And then you end up realizing, oh, they like a lot of reverb. When you get the notes back from the first pass, it's like, oh, okay. He's one of those. Yeah. Or vice versa. It's like, there's too much space around the vocal. Like, okay, dry it up. Here we go. So I think that's why the mix shootout kind of drives me nuts. I don't know if you've experienced that before, where a band or an artist circulates a song and they have like a bunch of guys mix it Mm -hmm. and they choose it blind. And they give you no input, nothing. And you're just supposed to like mix it how you hear it. And my issue with that is, well, I could hear it 10 different ways without any sort of input from the artist or the band. I feel like almost a little lost because I could go down this road where it's all like big sounding and you know everything's clean and slick. Or I could go down this other road where everything's kind of like grungy and got like some fur on it and it's super dry. Like there's There's different ways and sometimes you pull up the faders and you're like, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. But there's sometimes where it's like, I don't know, what am I supposed to do here? So my thing now is if I'm doing a test, quote unquote, test mix or a shootout is I'll do it, but I wanna have a conversation with the band or the producer or the artist, whoever is gonna be listening back to it. I just want something to go on. Yeah. Give me a hint. And I feel like that way I can get it closer to where you guys are imagining stuff. And also, like, I never expect, like, the first pass to be magic. I mean, if if it is, I'm immediately suspicious. Like, there's no way I nailed it. Like, no mixed notes come back? Right, right. Where it's like, we, we love it. It's perfect. Right. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That
1: doesn't work. Because you know they're going to play it for somebody within the next week of saying that, and then they're going to come back and go, well, we played it yeah. for a few friends, and what have our friends used to
0: engineer? And Exactly. He was saying something about too much 800 hertz, <laughs> something like that. Again, so that's why like in a spec mix, I always say, give me one round of comments. Give me some feedback. We like where this is going. Could you look at this, this, and this? or come back and go, this isn't close to what we were thinking, thank you very much for trying. Right, Just something like that so I can get my arms around it. I feel like making music is a collaborative process. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't wanna be the odd guy going, no, this is your mix, this is perfect. I want the artist to be like over the moon about it and loving it and involved in it. I want that feedback, that feedback's important because at the end of the day, Their name's a lot bigger on the record than mine, and they're the ones who are going to have to go out and play it every night. So you guys need to be, it it needs to feel like you. When you were uh, working with Rick,
1: were you mostly engineering for Rick or were you also mixing?
0: It was mostly engineering. There was definitely some mixing. Mm -hmm. Not as much as I would have liked, I guess, but there was some. Okay. Okay. 10
1: years is how long you were with them and then you struck out on your own. Yeah. Has that been your MO since then?
0: Yeah. There's a couple of producers that I'll still engineer for. Okay. That, you know, I like working with. And what's great about these people is it's collaborative. They value my input. They want to know what I think or there's a back and forth to it. And that makes it enjoyable there's a reward to that rather than just being like the robot who sits at the console and doesn't say a word. It's like, that's, that just, it doesn't really interest me when you're not part of the process. It's hard to take ownership in something. As far as evolving
1: from the time you arrived at Oceanway, working with Rick, your freelance time leading right up to right now, how do you think you've evolved And how you approach, not from necessarily a technical perspective, but do you approach the craft much different than you did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago?
0: I think now what I tend to lean into is letting things kind of evolve organically a little bit more, like trying not to push something too hard, an idea or something and kind of letting letting the song and letting the band lead it. That sounds a little weird, I guess, but what it is is speaking my piece, but taking a step back, like trying to be more of a listener and less of a do this, do that. And I feel like that just makes it a little more collaborative. Like I like when records are collaborative. I like working with an artist to make a record not for an artist to make a record so less micromanaging of, of the details yeah i i, I think so and I, and i think i think it's really important to keep the vibe in the room good to avoid dark situations like things can turn dark really quick if somebody isn't feeling heard or is frustrated with how things are going so that's another reason that I like to keep people involved because I want them to feel heard. I want them to feel like this is their record and I'm not like, okay, we're going to do it this way. This is how I do it. I think to that effect, if you listen to records I've done, like there is no Dave Schiffman sound. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's important that the artist shines through and that's The way i like to let the record go to where the artist is shining through and sometimes you have to let things go a little bit before you actually step in sometimes you have to let people (laughs) realize that something isn't working before you suggest something and it's hard for me and i think for a lot of people who are engineers because you're always kind of looking four or five moves into the future, or I think I am anyway. Yeah. Like, how is that going to mix? How is that going to go with this? How does this work with the other songs on the record? Is the sound right? Is the mic right? Oh, you know, maybe... I, and that's all going on in my head. And what I've learned is I need to shut that all off initially and just see how it all develops. And then when things start to... Spiral the wrong way. Be able to kind of just help push it back over and get it back on track. With some artists, you have to dig a little deeper. Sometimes you you have to be a little more involved in the arrangement or in the lyrics. But then there are some artists where it's like I, I don't want to mess with his lyrics. I like what he's doing or I like what they're doing. It's right. It feels yeah. good to me. You know, I, I think doing something just to do something. Is how producers get a bad a bad rep, where right. it's like, oh well, you know, I got to do my thing to it. It's like, no, fuck that. yeah, you don't have to do your thing. It's like your thing is to make the record sound like the band and the best version thereof. So I think being flexible and being able to let something go a little bit without micromanaging it helps with the the atmosphere in the studio Mm -hmm. i think it ultimately also helps the final product you know the record
1: yeah i'm curious how you would deal with these two types of situations let's say if you're dealing with a solo artist everybody else's opinions in the situation it's like a pyramid right exactly yeah (laughs) but in a band situation where it's a democracy and you know maybe there's one or two strong-willed people in the band I'm always on the lookout for the member of the band that's kind of getting left out. But I'm also wary of the member of the band who's just like making suggestions that are counter to the goal of the record and just, they're getting in the way because they're just always like, Hey man, what if we try this? And everybody looks at them like,
0: what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. The person that's on his own trip. Yes. Yes.
1: Exactly. So that those two personalities, Yeah. do you have ways of how you deal with the varying personalities in a band situation?
0: I think it's important to figure out a way to validate the guy who's on his own trip so they understand that you're paying attention to them, but sometimes what they're suggesting maybe isn't right for the moment, Right, and I think also, and you know, I don't know if you have this experience that the longer you're in the room with the band, hopefully the looser things get, and you're able to be a little more casual about stuff. So when somebody does say something that you think, "Wow, that's a really dumb idea," (laughs) but you don't want to come and say that, you're able to kind of get away from it, going, "Oh, okay. Well, it's like wasn't exactly what I was thinking, but." could you put a pin in that and maybe we'll look at that tomorrow or in a couple hours? I think as long as you're validating it and not ignoring it, I think that usually makes people happy. Yeah. But to the band is a democracy thing, that's a bunch of horse shit. <laughs> like a band is a band is a monarchy. Yeah. I mean, there is always the voice in the band who is the de facto kind of calling the shots. Yeah. And hopefully they are calling the shots in a way that makes sense. So I'm happy to have that person on my side. But something I tell everybody I work with is all I want in terms of my ideas is I would listen to your ideas. I just want my ideas to be heard and try it out. If nobody likes it, nobody likes it. It's not my job to force it down your throat. It's my job to put the idea out there, to open the conversation. Yeah. Like, this chorus doesn't work to me. Could we try something along the lines of this? Or here's what's bothering me about the chorus right now. I'm not feeling like I'm getting a lift in the chorus. And I feel as though... Lyrically is where we're struggling. And then you may get some feedback with, well, we love the lyrics. Okay, I hear you. But could we try maybe not saying the same thing over and over through the whole chorus? It is a good line. It's a great line. But it needs to go someplace. Can we just try and mess around with something where... Where it goes someplace, you know, like a post chorus or a tag. It just needs to be some sort of exclamation point that I don't feel like we're getting yet. Mm -hmm. And hopefully your band or artist comes back and says, all right, well, I'm down to hear that. Sure. What do you have in mind? And then just start kind of throwing around ideas. And sometimes it's like, you know what? You guys are right. It doesn't need anything else. This is the chorus. And the way we're going to lift the chorus is we're going to do it musically instead of lyrically. Let's kind of look for a hook that's going to come in halfway through that's going to get us to the next level. But it's just a matter of getting it out there. Yeah. Making your opinion known. And hopefully, you know, you've hired me, so you want my opinion. (laughs) You've hired me. You want my input. That's why I'm here. That's why you're paying me. So that usually ends up working out okay.
1: I'm always having an issue with the members of the band who are proposing hard ideas that seem self-serving and that go yes. against the song entirely. And it's just, yes. it satisfies their ego, but it has no place in the song.
0: Yes, that can be challenging. I want to hear more of me. I want to hear more bass. I want to hear more... In a mixed situation, what what I'll tell a band is don't tell me who's making the comments. I don't want to get a list of notes where, okay, well, here's the drummer's notes. Like, I don't give a shit who's giving me the notes. You guys need to look at the notes as a band and decide whether these notes make sense. And you also need to decide if any of these notes are fighting each other. Like, you'll see make the snare louder, and then, you know, further down the paragraph, the snare's too loud. (laughs) Right. Drummer says, guitar player says. Right. I was like, so, for starters, don't break it down by individual. Just give me the note. Just say, we would like to hear more snare. Because that way, I know that all of you guys are on the same page. That's really important in mixing, is to get everybody on the same page, to get everybody to want to hear the same mix. Right. And when you're getting like different ideas from different directions, that's fine. But it's important to make sure that they're not going against one another. The other excruciating note is the snare sounds weird or the vocal sounds weird. All right, you're going to have to Elaborate. Expand, elaborate on that. And usually that turns into, well, I'm not very technically minded. I was like, I'm not asking for a technical explanation. I just want to know what it is you don't like about the vocal. I can't improve it or change it for you with it's weird. It's not a a good mix adjective. (laughs) It's like mix adjectives, warm, bright, dull, you know, (laughs) wet, dry. Right things like that. Down the street. Yeah. That I can replicate. I can't get rid of the weird. There's no button where I can scoop the weird out or add more weird. (laughs) There's no plugin (laughs) that they make. Yeah. Can you make it weirder? Yeah. I can. Sure. Like, And then, okay, when somebody wants it weirder, then that's when I need to, I guess, open my toolbox and look for something that I consider weird. But when it's something where it's like the snare doesn't sound right to me well what would make it sound right to you
1: i love your thing about consolidated mix revisions because otherwise it's almost like taking a lunch order yeah i'm gonna have this right or i already said it you get those conflicting things i want the snare drum lower i want the snare drum louder right nobody's listening
0: to one another and most bands When they do this, they really do like it. They're like, oh, this makes so much more sense to do notes like this. And then what happens is you get a note. We're having trouble with the snare. Some of us think it's too loud. Some of us think it's too soft. Maybe it's just something where it needs to sound different. What do you think? And that's a better note than it doesn't sound right. Right. Because It's like, okay, it's not a volume thing that's bothering them. Then that gives me a little bit to go on. Okay, it's tonality. What is it? Is it a wetness thing? Is it where it is in the room? Is it too forward? Is it too back? Is there too much room on it? Then I can start to go through all those different options in my head and kind of figure out which one makes the most sense with the mix.
1: So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. I want to transition a little bit and talk about your studio, which I visited. And this is in your backyard. This is a a freestanding building, which sounds fantastic. Oh, thank you. We talked about it when I visited, but could you maybe retell it a little bit here for the audience about the journey of your space?
0: Okay. I think it was 2007, 2008 when the great culling began in the record business where bands were getting chopped left and right. I think Capital cut their entire roster, literally. They got rid of everybody. And the writing was on the wall. Budgets are going to disintegrate. So you better figure it out. So I have this garage in my backyard that you could literally push over if you tried. It was this teetery piece of shit that i just kind of walk by and be like, what am I going to do with this? And I was like, all right, it's time to do it. So I uh, found somebody to look into converting it into a studio. There was this great studio designer who's since passed away, a guy named Vincent van Hoff, who uh, had a company here in town he designed a lot of amazing rooms all over the world. I mean, starting with, I think he had a lot to do with A&M, Conway, not Capital, but uh, I'm sorry, Vincent, I, I can't remember your studio credits, but <laughs> needless to say, he made some great rooms and I always loved how his rooms sounded when I was in them. So I got connected with him and I was like, I'm looking to convert my garage. How would I do that? Where do I start? And he connected me with the guy who had been doing his building, a guy named Jacques Lacroix, who is brilliant, just knows everything and had a really good sense of what it was I was going after. My whole charge to him was, I need to do it cheaply, but I don't want to skimp. I need it so that the neighbors have no idea what I'm doing but i can listen as loud as i want so that's where we went and it turned into i think there's three or four layers to every wall including something called hat rack which creates a pocket of air like a 1 inch pocket of air which is great for i think it's low end it keeps low end from escaping there are virtually no holes in the walls at all so Sound can escape. Yeah, it, I guess it's like three or four layers. They were about to do the last layer, which would have been drywall. And I walked in and it was all just exposed plywood, you know, with the writing on it and everything. And I was like, this sounds great. I don't wanna do the drywall. And the builder looked at me like, like I was crazy. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, this looks terrible. I was like, I don't care this sounds right to me. It's not reflective. It's like it feels tight. It feels good. It feels like a control room. Let's just leave it here. So (laughs) begrudgingly, they walked out and that was it. And put up just a board behind the speakers with some pegboard and a little bit of R1 insulation. So there's a little bit of suck up of sound there. And Jacques built these enormous Hemholtz filters that are the size of garage doors, which are in where the garage doors were. So they're soffited in. So whatever hits those just stays there. It doesn't come back. I think the t- it's called like a one-pass room. There's no reflection. We had that and then Vincent came down and he listened. He's like, don't do anything else. Let's just listen and see what we have. So he came down and he listened. He put on his Quincy Jones (laughs) record and he listens and he's like, yeah, it sounds good in here. You know what you need? You need some isosceles triangles on your ceiling because I have a pitched ceiling. I should have mentioned that. Mm. It is pitched. And there was a bit of a standing wave kind of at the listening position, I think, you know, around like maybe like around 220 or 240 or something. He's like, let's just put up some isosceles triangles, five of them in back, and that'll break up your standing wave. And then we'll tighten up the listening area. We'll just put a poly right above you, which is like a, a half cylinder thing that kind of breaks up reflections. So we put up the triangles, we put up the poly, and it sounded great. And then most recently
1: you've set up an Atmos room In there, we both share in common some of the PMC speakers for our surrounds. Yeah. And what struck me when I was there listening to some reference stuff was our rooms are very different in size. And mine is much smaller than yours. But what blew me out of the water was how similar the mixes sounded in both our rooms. Everything that I'm used to hearing in my room on some of these reference Atmos mixes, I heard in your room. And that was a real pleasant surprise. I wanted to ask you, your decision to get into Atmos, what drove that?
0: My decision to get into Atmos was so like spur of the moment. I don't know what came over me. I just got this, I think it was partially from a sales pitch and partially from, I was just feeling, just feeling like a little stagnant. Like I just, I just felt like I needed a new, not, not that I've mastered mixing or producing, far from it. But I just wanted like a new challenge. I was just looking to raise the bar. Mm. And I went over to uh, Lemon Tree out in Highland Park. That's where PMC has a listening room. That's where they were impressing people. And Maurice Patisse, who is the the president of PMC, invited me out to listen. And he plays me all these different mixes, you know, the Elton John mix, oh, yeah. <laughs> among others. I was like, okay, it sounds a little gimmicky to me. I gotta say, Elton John mix aside, I was like, the other stuff I was hearing, it just it just sounds like there's a lot of tricks going on. And, and I'm not sure what it has to do with the music. And that's when I kind of had this light bulb moment where I was like, if I'm gonna do this, that's what I wanna focus on. That's what I wanna try and accomplish where I can do Atmos mixes that make sense with the music that tell the story, but they're not like overpowering you with watch me move from one side to the other. I kinda liken it to when bands discovered the pan pot in the 70s, you know, <laughs> where, oh, you mean I can go from one speaker to another and every record has it moving all over. I mean, love Jimi Hendrix, but oh my God, it's like everything is just moving all over the place. And Jimmy Page also, those Zeppelin records, stuff's moving all over the place. And it was just like new toy. And I think as the years progressed, people learned how to incorporate stereo into the music. And it didn't become a, a gimmick anymore. It just became part of the song. Mm. And now we don't even think about stereo versus mono anymore because nobody listens to mono except probably you and me (laughs) when we're doing a stereo mix, you know? Right, or when we're at the grocery store. Exactly. So I think that's the next step for Atmos, and that's what got me kind of jazzed on the whole idea was I feel like this could be the next phase, like the next stereo. Like this could be what stereo was to mono. And I think it just needs to it needs to make sense with the music. So that's been my challenge to myself.
1: Yeah. And as time goes along, do you find more people are talking to
0: you about it or are you at that point yet? Surprisingly, I feel like the public still is very undereducated about it. Yeah. I really wish, you know, when Apple dropped it in May, there had been a bit more of a educational process. And I'm not saying I know how to do that, but I just feel like for the most part, the public is fairly ignorant to it. Yeah. Because it's really hard to experience. I mean, you listen to it in earbuds and it sounds cool, but it's nowhere near what it sounds like when you're sitting in between nine speakers. Yeah. It's almost a religious experience. It really is a different thing, especially when it's a great Atmos mix it's emotional, it's physical, it's visceral. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting for the hardware to catch up. The consumer hardware. The consumer hardware. Apple, if you're listening to this, I'm waiting for a way where you can buy four pods that are Bluetooth together and you drop them around you, you connect them and poof, you've got Atmos done. And I've
1: said it on on this show many, many times. I think that that's what's going to happen. I think that the HomePod thing, they canned them for a while and apparently they're coming
0: back. And I think when they come back, that's going to be what we're going to see. I hope so, because I I think that's the way to go. And if you can get it in the under $1,000 range to where people can put it in their living room and they've got it. And then I think you do that other companies are going to start to try and beat it and they're going to start to try and and the prices will come down. But I think if you don't get in under that $1,000 price point, you're chasing away 90% of your potential audience or consumer. Yeah. I feel that if they don't do this, it's going to be a
1: major lost opportunity, but yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs>
0: yeah. At this point, that's all you can do.
1: And I'd like to, once again, quickly transition to another topic, Anya, and that is money. You've been at this for a while. You've seen the ups and the downs. With everything that you know now, what is your approach or mindset when it comes to being an audio professional and how you deal with money? And maybe inside of that will be a little bit of a recommendation to others listening.
0: Yeah, it's... It's a challenge. And part of the challenge is you're working against the band whose buddy runs Pro Tools on his computer and he's going to mix it for nothing. And what's your comeback to that? <laughs> like, I'm not going to work for nothing. Right. I don't do that anymore unless it's something that I see a future in and I want to be a part of. But I think... It's really hard to take a stand and go, I'm not going to work for anything less than this. It's hard to do that because you can do that. And there are guys out there who do it. I just like to work and I like to work with young bands and new artists. So it's weird. My response when people come at me with the budget is, well, if I'm into it and I like it, I'll make it work is where I start from. So if it's something I wanna do, then I wanna figure out how to make it work. And a lot of times I'm probably not getting paid my worth or what the job is worth, but that is the world we're in now. There is no union. There is nobody keeping a limit on that. And. I don't know how that works, because for everything you pass on, there's probably four or five other people who will scoop it up in a second, and they'll do it for less. Yeah. And again, not wanting to undersell what I do or to cheapen it, but the bottom line is a lot of new artists don't have a lot of money. The budget isn't always what you want it to be, so you figure out ways to make it work. And what about
1: managing what you've got just as a philosophy in your own personal finance it's like you yeah. you've got a fair amount of gear in there and i'm sure that that's cost a pretty penny over time so now that you have all the tools that you need to make a record or you can go to studios and have everything you need do you put a lot of money into into gear i mean i know you just did this Atmos thing so that's kind of a silly question but
0: yeah i mean the 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 Atmos install definitely left me a little uh, <laughs> a little shredded money wise but <laughs> compared to a lot of people i know i am not a big gear hound i mean i love it but everybody's got different priorities in life and when you have a family when you have kids mm. that starts to take precedence over that oh man that u47 i'd love to get that or the new pmc speakers now those sound amazing i'd love to have those you start to realize, okay, well, you know what? I can still make things sound great on these PMC speakers. I really don't need to upgrade. I really don't need a U47. Right. And it's just about priorities and what is it that you really need? And I don't go into purchases lightly, like big purchases, even though I said that the Atmos thing felt spur of the moment it really was something that I sat down and really kind of thought about and how am I gonna earn this back? How long is this gonna take for me to kind of feel like, all right, I'm caught up, you know, it's paid off.
1: Yeah, it's- It's a bit of a puzzle, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is because I'm a huge fan of great old gear and I've been lucky enough to use it. And once you kind of know what it sounds like, once you know what those great mics sound like, and great mic prees and great console and tape machine, you're a little spoiled. It's like, you want that all the time. Then it's like, well, do I really want a tape machine in my house? <laughs> I don't really want a tape machine in my house because that's another thing to fix. It's another thing to maintain. I want to keep it lean. That's been my mantra since I built the studio is keep it as lean as I can, not skimp on important things like my monitors Or my signal chain for my two track stereo. Make sure that stuff sounds good, but not overspend. Yeah. It's really easy to get sucked into that world. There's a guy I know who has he literally has three Fairchild 670s in his room, his home studio. And those are going for what now? Like close to a hundred grand each? Damn. And (laughs) I walked into his room and I was like, what do you need three Fairchild 670s for? I was like, sell two and buy a house. <laughs> you know, that, that's where my head's at, you know? As much as I can appreciate and respect and love like the whole world that that equipment came out of, I just can't make sense of paying $100,000 for a compressor. Yeah, it makes zero sense. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, I'm lucky. I have five Neve 1073s, which are considered like the pinnacle of mic pre. They're like the unicorn. They're like the the magic mic pre. And I bought them a really long time ago. I went in with this guy and we bought a BCM 10 out of Brigham Young University. So the thing was spotless. (laughs) No smoking around it, nothing. No coffee spilled in it. No coffee spills, nothing. So it was great. And we got it for what you would consider now a song. It was nothing. And I've just sat on these 1073s and I use them and I love them. And now five 1073s could almost put my daughter through college. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, well, do I really need all five ten seventy three right? There's an argument to be made to to sell them now,
1: and I talked about this with Dan Alexander, who has mm-hmm. been selling gear for quite a long time and you know he talks about how there are people in this world who are scooping up all the ten seventy threes and the Fairchilds and all the u forty sevens as investments. Yeah. They're not even using them and you know
0: that's that's a crime that that is shameful, yeah because that's what this gear is for. I mean, to create that magic. It's like, if you, have a, if you have a U47 that Frank Sinatra sang on and you put it in a showcase, like what's the point? Yeah. Give people the opportunity to hear the magic of that microphone, because as I'm sure you know, all those two mics, they all sound different. Yeah. I mean, you put up five U47s, you will hear five different microphones and that's what makes them so special And so amazing is one might be right for this singer, but it might not work for this singer. And you start to like at Oceanway, like Oceanway had a mic locker like nobody's business. There were like 12 C12s and 15 U47s and a ton of 251s, but you would know it'd be like, okay, not to be a name dropper or anything, it'd be like, Tom Petty's coming in, we need C12 number one. Because that was the C12 that Tom sang through. And you put it up and it sounded like Tom Petty. (laughs) There was no disputing it. Each one of these mics just has that thing. And when you put it up, sometimes it's just like your brain kind of melts because you're like, that just sounds like I'm like looking down the guy's throat. I mean, that's incredible.
1: Yeah. Final question here. So you have a family. I'm curious about your approach to a work-life balance with, I mean, you're doing something that you love, clearly, but you've got a family too. So how do you juggle all that and keep everybody at peace and happy?
0: Well, I guess the the quick answer is you don't. (laughs) Right. It's definitely a challenge. I will say my wife is a saint. She has always been very supportive and she's very independent, which I think is key. And she she owns her own business as well, which she's very passionate about. So I think because of that, we are on similar footing and we're both self-employed. And the self-employed mantra is when there's work, you take it because yep. the next week you could be dry as a bone. So I think we both have that mantra. And to the detriment of our travel life and our social life absolutely but if you're with somebody who gets you then it should make sense Hmm. and believe me there there are times when she's pissed off that i'm going away for four weeks to make a record that doesn't make her too happy and i get it but here's the trade-off it's like well to bring that entire band here to L.A. to make a record is going to bust the budget right there as opposed to one guy going the other way and doing the record there. So it turns into a bit of travel. But it's, again, like I said, with budgets where they are now, these are sacrifices. It's part of the day-to-day. And I wish on some level that there was... I was doing more work in L.A. Mm -hmm. than I am, but it's the reality of the situation, and it's the opportunities that come up, and it's the artists that I want to work with that I feel like I'm going to be an asset to, and it's going to let me shine the best as well. And by
1: doing those gigs and having success with those gigs, that, of course, brings more work And money to the table to support
0: the family in the end. Right. It feeds on itself and you're only, I guess, as good as your last credit. So that's important and you want to try and you want to keep that up and you want to keep that momentum when it's there. Yeah, it's a challenge, but you figure out a way to make it work. And I know lots of engineers and producers that are divorced because it didn't work and That's the sad reality of it. So it takes finding that person who gets you for you and gets that you do what you do because that's who you are. I mean, this is like part of my DNA. This is like who I am. So telling me that I can't do it anymore, you're going to have a a pretty unhappy boy on your hands if that's the case.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that would be a terrible situation to have somebody say, you got to stop
0: doing this. Right. Right. I mean, it's non-starter, and I think anybody who is in a relationship with people who do what we do understands that. They kind of have to, or they shouldn't, or you shouldn't be in the relationship with them, I guess, because it's not fair to them that you are off doing this thing until all hours of the night, but it's just, it's who you are. I haven't had any other job in my life aside from the the old voiceover studio back when I started out. So I don't really know anything else. If you told me I couldn't do this, I'd be hard pressed to tell you what else I could do, what else I'm qualified to do. Right. Well, I
1: really appreciate you taking this time with me, Dave. This, is, this has been fun. And I knew that when we chatted, when I came down to LA, I was just like, we're going to have a good conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. And it's great to... Uh, chew the fat about what's going on in, in our world right now. Yeah.
1: And I failed to mention that you and I, like former WCA guests, Will Kennedy and Matt Wallace are part of the same Dolby Atmos mixers group. And, oh, that's right. And I can't leave out Steve Genowick, of course, cause, and, and Andrew Sheps and Sylvia Massey, many former WCA guests are in the damn group. Uh-huh. So in that damn group, in that damn group. Right. Right. That's our secret society of Dolby uh, Atmos mixers.
0: It's really been a lot of fun being part of that because one thing that I really miss about the, the old days is when you're at a multi-room studio, the hang, you know, where you get to see people that, that are doing what you're doing. And, you know, you wander into other people's rooms and kind of talk shit and check out other people's gear and other people's setup. Like, that really was a great part of it. And I feel like Dam kind of gives me a little bit of a taste of that because it's just a whole bunch of like super talented people, yeah, all in the room together, just sharing ideas. And it's so nice to have that. It really is. I really every time we get together, I, it's a lot of fun. And you need to come down and be part of it more.
1: Oh, I know. I need to. I need to have a permanent seat on the Southwest flight that goes down there.
0: Exactly. Yeah. There you go.
1: Well, cool. Well, I'm going to let you go. So you take care and uh, thanks again.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Talk to you soon.
1: All right. Our friends over at Kali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for Dave Schiffman here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Next week, of course, is the Big 400. Come on back for that, and you'll hear a great guest as well. Uh, There's also something I want to direct you to. Go to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. You can download the 15 tips to help you survive as a recording professional. That, of course, is information derived from interviews with Steve Albini, Eric Valentine, Andrew Sheps and Jack and Dino. It's a great little document you can check out. That's at workingclassaudio.com/slash one five tips. And there's the music. So that means, of course, we have to thank our crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song and the magical voice of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,